Dear Asian Girl, for Asian Girls, by Asian Girls. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Asian Girl. If you're new around here, just a recap of who we have. My name's Meghna. I use she, her pronouns. I'm 19 years old, an Indian American living in sunny Southern California. I'm currently a student at UCLA, and let's give it over to our other co-host. Hello, everyone. My name is Eden. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm 21 years old. I'm based in the UK, in between London and Bristol, and I'm a recent graduate, so I now work in the grassroots sector. But, oh my god, so excited about our episode today, Megna. Yeah, I'm super excited too. This is a bit of a different topic, because... As you all know, we are continuing on with our Representation Matters season, all about the arts, and we're actually doing an episode today about museums, and we're really, really excited to hear from Abby later on, because she'll be interviewing someone named Maya Hayashi from the Wing Luke Museum, which is actually a pan-Asian museum in Seattle. But first, we wanted to just have like an informal chat about our relationships with museums and, and what they mean to us, so... Let's start it off with, with you, Eden. What's what's your relationship with museums? How have you interacted with museums throughout your life? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is. Even though my, I would say it's fair to say my relationship to like reading and academia has always been really up and down, especially in recent years, like graduating and suffering that like final year of severe burnout. <laughs> um, still, like since I've been young and, and through to now, I've always been a lover of learning. And that meant that as a kid, I was really, really drawn to museums because museums are touted as these like institutions of like infinite knowledge and you can learn everything here and all the objective truths and everything and the facts of the world and why we exist and how we came to be. And obviously, as I grew older and more aware of what I had inherited and my background, I realized that museums were so much more than what they claimed to be. And that really complicated the way that I related to them and the way that I felt when I visited them. So, yeah. And the cherry on top of all of that really was a really poorly managed internship that I took part in. It was actually just last summer. It feels like it was, well, it feels like it was a long time ago, but also that it was like yesterday because I'm always thinking about this. Wait, Eden, is this the, is this the notorious museum experience that you've, you've talked about before? Yes. This is the experience I keep talking about, but I haven't actually ever debriefed because it was just that traumatic and it's so difficult to explain succinctly because succinctly because it's just so much went down and it was only two weeks long. Like the internship was only two weeks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really put the I really put the nail in the coffin with my whole complicated relationship to museums. Because even before that I was like really on the edge of like, ooh, museums, do I wanna enter this space as a person who who is at my positionality and oh my god do I want to be paid at a museum to so-called decolonize it like is that going to happen in two weeks that's what it was claiming to be so it was a lot and that really put the nail in the coffin for me but yeah complicated is the answer how about you Megna? I would pretty much echo a lot of the things you've been talking about um I would say that like my interest in museums was pretty limited as a kid. Like, I really did love learning about history and the storytelling aspect of, like, different types of history, different types of people's history. But whenever I entered museums, I just didn't feel connected to the space because 
it was always so detached from my own experience. Like I didn't, I didn't see myself or anyone like me represented in these displays and this information. Like any kind of historical museum I entered, it was very like Western and white. And this is the history of all these white men who built our nation. And like different types of ethnicities, different types of races, or really just footnotes in different parts of the exhibits or they were just you know one little placard to just commemorate that this group of people did exist during this time but because there really wasn't that type of representation i always just kind of breezed through museums like we'd have field trips to museums and i kind of just looked at everything was like oh yeah that's neat oh yeah like this is cool i guess but i never like felt that connection and it really just didn't have me enjoying museums because museums are supposed to be like an enjoyable educational experience but I just wasn't able to enjoy them to the Mm -hmm. full extent because of that lack of representation and personal reflection and plus I also think there's a little bit of a component of most traditional museums just being so cut off and like closed off from the public like if you if you imagine like a traditional museum you imagine like these like pristine glass cases and all the displays just like behind this barrier and it always just felt like we were not allowed to be like in this space to indulge in this experience because we were so far away from the material that was being presented so like I personally, like, when I started feeling more connected to museums, it only really happened once I found kind of unconventional types of exhibits where we were allowed to, like, touch and feel and really, like, enter the space. And, and like, you had the exhibit all around you instead of just, like, in front of you behind this barrier, you know? So, like, I would say kind of limited interest in the beginning with museums, but as we start to see this kind of evolution of what a museum is a lot more of that feeling of connection and and personal involvement in the museum Mm, that's so interesting that you felt that kind of the lack of representation or the misrepresentation and you also felt like museums weren't accessible spaces because I feel like I like completely feel that as well but it got so complicated when I got older and more knowledgeable as well because I suddenly felt like oh maybe it's a good thing that I'm not represented and I don't see anything here from my culture and my background because that means that they I guess they didn't steal things from my ancestors I guess that's a great thing but it was still this really great feeling of like loss and like missing out because oh why do other people get to come in a museum and learn about their background their culture that their like probably direct ancestors but I don't get to do that like especially being people in the diaspora it's like oh why can't why don't I get to go to these sites of knowledge and learning and learn about me and my history so it was a really difficult like tug of war between oh why am I not represented I wish I was like everybody else but also thank god I'm not I guess that means maybe they didn't steal from my ancestors as much as they did from other people's so yeah really I think complicated sums up the relation of a lot of Asian girls but also just um, people of color more generally and people of global majority descent generally with the arts and heritage sector in general at least in the west it's happened differently all over the world but yeah I feel like I feel like the um the approach of neutrality is a big part of why museums can feel so problematic like they claim to be they purport to be these yeah these places of objective knowledge and objective truth in fact 
and they really don't like to acknowledge their roots in colonialism and a really quite violent um, extraction and theft. Um, and of course, they don't like to claim that the stories they're telling are very one-sided and they're designed not only by, but also for people of a very particular background. So meaning like the white elite men and the white white elite classes in general. Uh, if we look at the British Museum, because how could we do a museum episode without at least sure. we, name I drop. knew we were going to mention the British Museum. We could do a whole thing, a whole side segment on the British Museum itself. We won't, but there's just so much we could talk about. Also, the the recent irony where the British Museum had their artifacts stolen. I just like the irony there is so funny. It's so unfunnily funny. Karma? I, I actually can't believe. Yeah, I'm just like. It sounds, it really does sound like karma, not gonna lie. But yeah, if we look at uh, a case study, for example, the Benin bronzes, the infamous stealing of the Benin bronzes, I should say, um, they were taken from Benin in Nigeria in 1897. And since then, all of the bronzes have been scattered across 160 museums and countless other private collections of wealthy people, mostly in the West, as we might expect. And the stories that circulate, or that did used to circulate, um, about how these ended up in British hands were all to do with, oh, the British were so brave, they were so, they were so courageous going against these uncivilized and irrational barbarians in Nigeria. And obviously now we understand, and not even now, I mean, this has been understood by particular groups for since the beginning, of course, you know, it's just in the West that it's been harder to discover the truth. Um, but now we're, we're seeing that, no, this is about coloniality this is about colonization this is about theft and extraction and extortion and it is not at all ethical um that these bronzes exist outside of their homes so i think that's a really classic case of where the narrative around museums is starting to change but yeah i don't know if you want to speak more to that kind of narrative that museums have no yeah i did think it was interesting how you brought up that the way museums present exhibits and information and different like ancestral items and heritage of other cultures and places how that really kind of creates this narrative of the british being like brave because that's the way they present that information they're like oh yeah we journeyed into these exotic faraway places and we we struggled and overcame and we brought back all of this all of this stuff that's like kind of symbolizes our victory like that narrative how that really comes across in museums because that that's so true like that's how this stuff is is presented in these spaces and you know museums they, they always like navigate that that fine line between like engaging people's curiosity and their fascination but then also really conveying these these narratives of these really bad things that people did, but then kind of romanticizing them and and justifying them in these ways. And we we see this in ways that museums also like perpetuate like Orientalist narratives, like having that sort mm. of a dichotomy, that comparison between like the East and the West, um, and trying to position the West as this higher caliber society or like the natural evolution of society. Um, and we can see this in ways that, like, oh, Eastern art is portrayed as as inferior or, like, kind of ancient and in the past, while Western culture and art is seen as something progressive and forward-facing. And 
it's just you you can really see that in in these spaces and just like the way this information is presented and even in natural history museums we know that these museums have roots in racism and colonial thinking particularly in like eugenics movements and white supremacy because there's this weird fascination with like the remains of indigenous people and indigenous civilizations kind of showcasing them as as something that was in the past something that's happened but is no longer happening even though these people and these cultures still exist in the real world the way museums portray their stories and narratives is as if they've ended and all we can do is kind of look at them from the lens of the past which is really weird because these people like exist in the present are trying to be heard and seen and yet we constantly regard them as if they're these like fantastical mythological people from a far-flung past and all we can do is read about them in history books and it's like no we are here we exist like listen to us we are talking to you um and in the united states this has been especially prevalent because like collectors have always been focused on like these native american skeletons and because native americans and indigenous people to the americas have been here obviously far longer than any other type of people in the united states their burial sites and their the remains of their people are you know scattered around the united states and they've been this target for collectors who have made it their mission to like gather them together and display them and show like oh yeah this is how people looked in the past and this is the past version of human beings but look at this the western society we are the future we are the evolution of what it means to be human and that narrative is just it has been and continues to be so prevalent in so many museums i remember being a fourth grader and walking through like museums that you know have information about indigenous peoples to california and just the way they would talk about these people was like yeah these these tribes they existed in the past and now all we can do is just remember them because they no longer exist or they're no longer as prevalent even though their descendants continue to live in these spaces and are trying to fight for the reclamation of their heritage and the reclamation of their land and culture so I, I definitely understand what you mean by like this colonialist narrative coming across the museums. And you know, I've always found it very interesting that a lot of these really established and, and historical museums have been ha- have been conveying this rhetoric of like, yeah, we have all these stolen items from all these different countries that we pillaged and colonized. But we're not going to give anything back because now it's part of our history. Like, now it's an important part of who we are. So we can't give it back because it's part of our identity. And it's like, excuse you, um, you took this from other people and now you're saying it's it's part of your identity and your culture and history. That's, doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. No. Oh my God. I have such an issue with that kind of, thinking and obviously that's the kind of thinking that people have because it serves the the imperial colonial project obviously in the imperial state but oh God, I just have such issue with it because well I mean there are obvious reasons why anyone anyone would have issue with this kind of thinking but it's 
it's kind of like my issue with the UK policy. I don't know if this is also in the US or anywhere else in the world, but there's a policy with the UK government of retain and explain, meaning you keep all these. Yeah, yeah. For those who can't see the video, <laughs> Megan's just like cocked an eyebrow, like what? But yeah, retain and explain, as in don't um, remove, don't take down statues, don't take down offensive paintings and um, artifacts in museums, don't get rid of them, don't give them back keep them and just explain that they have complicated histories to do with abuse and murder and violations of human rights and the inhumanity of Western and imperial thinkers. Like it's about retaining everything damaging and hurtful to global majority people and just explaining with words as if like putting a new plaque there will help anything. Like I have a real issue with that. And it's because people, people have such an issue with, reparative justice and like transformative justice and um reclamation and decolonization because to them decolonization what they're understanding that to be what they hear is the d and d to them means a loss so they're thinking oh we're losing our history we're losing our people we're losing our statues we're losing our objects in museums we're losing history but no it's not about that decolonization is about adding to the story it's about adding the voices that have been not silenced because they've they've been vocal for a long time the voices that have been ignored for a long time so decolonization isn't about removing anything although sometimes it has to be like sometimes you have to take down the statues you have I mean I'm from like Bristol you have to take down that statue sometimes you have to take down that painting and that is the best way to do things and you know something is the best way to do things or the most appropriate way to do things or the most valid way to do things because those decisions are made by the people who who are important here so I'm talking about like this is again relating to the traumatic internship I had I'm giving bits and pieces here because I don't want to take away from this amazing interview we've got coming up but I'm talking about this internship because one major thing we did was get a very offensive very um infamous George Stubbs painting removed it was very had a very colonial message it was very dehumanizing um to those of African and Caribbean backgrounds like black backgrounds and we got it taken down and it had been petitioned to be taken down for a long time and it's actually been put back up and my biggest issue with that and the biggest issue of like people who got it taken down alongside me was that this was a decision made by a group of like 18 16 16 to 18 global majority people and we're the people whose voices matter like in that group there are a good I want to say four or five people from black backgrounds as well so people directly impacted by the connotations of that painting and it was put back up by the senior leadership team of the museum meaning the white old male senior leadership team of the museum so when I think about decolonization, I think about what's right and when statues and things need to be taken down versus retained and explained. To me, it's always about who's making the decisions. To me, to me, decolonization, as much as we shouldn't have to be the ones bearing the weight and bearing the workload, if if and when we choose to, listen to us. You know, that, that's the least you can do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, let's talk about decolonization then. So, yeah, one common thread of decolonization in the museum context particularly is repatriation so returning those objects that have been um, extracted previously from people's countries um, and communities and giving them back 
And obviously the issue here is that the nature in which a lot of things were extracted means that we have no clue where these items came from. Like they were extracted in such huge quantities and in such violent ways um, and undocumented ways that we have no clue where to even begin returning these items to. And it's not possible for people from the communities to reach out and reclaim these items themselves because for a lot of museums, I know this is the one that I interned at and for a lot of major museums in the UK, especially mm -hmm. like the documentation of what is in the archives in like the thousands and millions of objects in the archives is so poor. People have no clue what's there. It's just they're just sat there collecting dust. And so if the museum doesn't know all the stolen objects they have, then the people from those communities, of course, they have no clue because this isn't documented, documented anywhere online. So that's the issue with the repatriation. No, yeah, I've heard infamous stories about, like, just how much stuff is in museum archives and, like, people just, like, losing things in there. Like, literally losing, like, pieces of other countries and other communities, like, history and their heritage just, like, getting lost in the recesses of these museums. And, like, the way you're talking about the... I think you said it was the retain and explain policy. Like, I'm sorry, that mm -hmm. sounds so ridiculous to me because like you're telling me that there is no other way for you to acknowledge the like atrocities that a country has done to, or a colonizing power has done to um, a community that's been colonized. There's no other way to acknowledge that with, uh, except for you keeping the things that you pillaged and, just saying oh yeah by the way this was stolen like it's like it's it's giving like people like like it's giving english professors who will say like derogatory language in class because it's part of like the literature text like you're telling me there is no other way for you to read that passage convey that message without saying that specific word that's literally harmful to your students like there's no other way you just don't have the creativity to come up with an alternate like method or explanation like so these museums they just need to keep this stuff so that oh yeah we're, we're taking we're taking responsibility for our crimes by keeping what we stole you, you get you get what i'm saying like that's it's just such like a like a ironic and, and contradictory and, and frankly just completely ridiculous policy to me mm -hmm. like i was i was blown away like like when you said that i cocked my eyebrow y'all did not see the look of utter like confusion and 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 indignation and like surprise on my face like it, it's wild it's wild it is the laziest policy i have ever heard like it is so lazy and so much so much of the uk government is just being lazy not to not to out the uk government here but yes absolutely to out the uk government so much of it is just about doing the bare like less than the bare minimum it's about doing absolutely nothing and using as little energy as possible like the thing with introducing like retaining and explaining I'm an English graduate you know like and I love reading and I love learning like I want to believe in the power of words and I do like I really do believe in the power of words and the importance of using the right language and communicating things in the right way and I really do believe that revolution revolutionizing our language and so like using language for example like global majority instead of ethnic minority because we do not belong to an ethnic minority look at the global context we are the majority here white people white westerners are the ethnic minority here wait that is so true 
I need to start using that language. Like, I keep slipping back into, like, ethnic minority. I will keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, if we say that, it's like, I describe myself as ethnically minoritized. I'm not inherently a minority. I'm not inherently a a marginal identity. I've been minoritized. I've been marginalized, you know? Like, so we are not yeah. people of color mm-hmm. because white Western people are not people without color, you know? We're not here to be people of color as if we don't get to just be people. Mm-hmm. So the new abbreviation using the global majority um, modification is uh, people with, wait, P-O-G-M, P-O-G-M, people of global majority. Yeah, P-O-G-M, so global majority. Pogum. Yeah, a really cute and fun thing to replace P-O-C. But yeah, going back, I really think that revolutionizing our language in that way is so powerful. I really do believe in it, and I think we need to keep doing that. But sometimes words aren't enough you know like actions speak louder than words and sometimes you need to listen to the people who are telling you the best ways to stop harming them because they know because it's them being harmed and just take down the statue down the painting keep the george Mm -hmm. stubbs horse and dog painting down just take it down so frustrating it's so simple just don't be lazy you know just listen Mm -hmm. to the people telling you what they need yeah wow crazy idea i also thought it was it was interesting how you mentioned that museums are very inaccessible for people because when I was thinking like one museums are inaccessible because obviously a lot of people don't see themselves reflected and represented in the history and culture displayed in these museums but I was also thinking very spatially inaccessible because like think about where museums are located they're always located in like the high-end high-income areas of major cities right and it's like I'm thinking back to the cities I've visited and I've never failed to find a museum in like a bougie part of like a major city. Like I recently went to Washington DC just this past weekend for a mock trial tournament and we were like driving through the city because we wanted to go see some of the, the monuments. And I saw several museums, but they were all in like the high end, upper class, like high income areas of the cities. And I'm just thinking like spatially, how are people who are, like you said, ethnically minoritized or not part of the global majority, how are they supposed to access these places? Or how are people who live in like lower income areas, how are they supposed to access this information in these places if they're so far away from them, even spatially and geographically? So like uh, one thing I was thinking about was in terms of increasing accessibility to museums, something that came to mind was this idea of traveling museums. Um, this past summer, I interned with this nonprofit, and one of the kind of activities we did together as a cohort was we visited a traveling museum exhibit. So this is an exhibit that goes around the country, goes specifically to communities such as, um, like, uh, this specific exhibit was about Japanese um, American internment and just the, the experiences of different um, ethnic communities during World War II. So there were experiences of people who were Chinese, who were Hispanic, who were white, Jewish, etc. And this exhibit would go specifically to communities that, you know, typically don't have like huge museum exhibits. Like I'm thinking uh, neighborhoods or ethnic neighborhoods, ethnic enclaves. This exhibit would go to these places and make itself accessible to different types of people. And that is something that's just really 
like it's it's amazing to me like that's something that i really think has revolutionized the museum experience that these exhibits can go to the people instead of having the people come into the museums Mm-hmm. You know, you're completely right. And I think these new approaches to museums are so needed. Like I'm a big believer in, um, oh, just like burn the system to the ground and start again, because I think with a lot of things, there's no there's no coming back from it. But it, I find it so interesting to look at the ways in which people do try to change the system from within and make changes within systems that can lead to longer term change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a really great segue into the Wing Luke Museum, who we'll hear from very shortly. But to give a bit of an intro, the Wing, the Wing Luke Museum has a very different um, and less traditional approach to the museum space. It's sort of like traveling museums, but a, a new take on um, the arts and heritage sector kind of space. Mm-hmm. So they work with individual artists and different groups to loan things in such a way that is building relationships with the surrounding community by uplifting their stories rather than extorting and stealing from communities and destroying relationships in favor of a like a white western serving misrepresentation yes. of these yes, minoritized we love, we love. Yeah, yeah it's just what a wild idea right just building relationships instead of burning bridges wow Who would have thunk? but yeah this is a this is a new kind of approach to a modern day museum system that feels more ethical feels more reasonable to me um, and I've actually seen this kind of new approach in London um, as well. So London in the UK. So um, the Hayward Gallery, which I think is part of the South Bank Centre in London, it doesn't have a permanent collection or an archive at all. So at any one time, the only things that it possesses, like it has in its ownership, are those, that's um, a gallery, so like those paintings that are on display. Uh, and they've been loaned and they're on temporary display and they sort of tend to take tours around the country so they don't have a permanent collection and as someone who during that internship I can keep mentioning had the absolute pleasure and horror of visiting the behind the scenes and going to the basement and seeing the archives and the millions of objects literally just sat collecting dust in in that major UK museum I'm really happy to hear about this new take on museums, this new ethical approach. Um, it feels much more genuinely about education and sharing culture rather than about self-interest and reinforcing hierarchies and like the science of why white Westerners and Anglo-Saxons are better than us, yeah. you know. So I'm so excited to hear more from the Wing Luke. And that means we're passing over to Abby now for the interview. Okay. Hi everyone. Welcome to Dear Asian Girl. I am your co-host. Abigail Lee, and here today, uh, could I have you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Maya Hayashi. I'm the education specialist at the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. So cool. I'm actually, that I've been geeking out over this for the entire time, so I'm just happy it managed to happen. Uh, for all of you longtime listeners, I am a Washington resident, uh, and I have very fond memories of the times when I had visited with my older siblings and their like church youth group once for an occasion. (laughs) And I was just like there and I was like, whoa, this is insane. Um, And I would love to, first of all, have you give us a rundown about the Wing Luke. But to add to my story, I growing up in this area, you just kind of assume that there are like pan Asian American museums everywhere but 
this is, from what I believe on your website, the only, na- like, in America, the only Pan-Asian museum. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, you might have other cultural institutions like the Japanese American National Museum down in Los Angeles, or there's like the um, Chinese American Museum even in Los Angeles to Kamla. Um, there's plenty of cultural institutions that really focus in on one experience. Um, and it's kind of cool. I mean, we are part of this cohort too of um, this Chinese American Historical Society, and it's kind of wild to know where there are other Chinese American museums. Like, there's one in like the Gulf Coast. There's some over in the middle of the South and their stories are completely different. Um, but I think that's something that makes the museum so special. And also where it gets a little bit harder and more challenging too, as you can imagine. Um, so we're the only Pan-Asian Pacific Islander American museum in the country. And with that in mind, our focus is really trying to kind of try our best to kind of capture people's experiences throughout our Asian diaspora, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian populations, knowing that our stories are different, but get in many ways tied together through legislation, through history, through um, kind of how how life was like when they moved from wherever they were, from wherever they were from, and moved here to um, the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, United States, where we kind of noticed there's a lot of kind of historic, um, but also just even present kind, kind of times where we see like a very much like a pattern between the first immigration waves, the second immigration waves, and seeing there's a lot of replication of a lot of negativity, a lot of laws, a lot of stereotypes. So um, it, it works to our benefit that we're able to cover a broad swath, also knowing that there's opportunities for us to reach new populations. And um, it's always a really interesting conversation we have as a museum to figure out who is under underrepresented because there's so many, so many community oh, groups under the umbrella. Um, and oftentimes, too, the conversation is also like around territory, U.S. territories, mm-hmm. kind of that complicated narrative, too. So it's it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. Um, and I think it's just a really great place where we see a lot of that community being built with that kind of Pan-Asian lens, kind of breaking down, maybe even some tensions between groups, too. So um, really proud to be a part of a Pan-Asian community group. And Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander group and it really is powerful to kind of um, learn more about this like larger um, diasporic experience this larger um, this larger kind of indigenous experience in the case of Native Hawaiians and a lot of Pacific Islanders as well. Yeah um, I also completely understand that even from the perspective of this podcast uh, because at this point we are no longer even just a maybe focusing on one country this is an attempt to be a Pan-Asian, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, but not even American uh, at that point. Um, But it's really something that we have found is so important. And what I think a big reason why we did want to reach out is like having to juggle something like that to keep track, to make sure that your voice isn't overstepping on other voices. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult, especially in the nature where even just the term Asian can mean so many different things wherever you are, um, whether you're like, man, England's on the mind right now, like in the UK where you say Asian and people assume uh, South Asian versus in America where you traditionally uh, imagine East Asians. Um, it's 
interesting, but there is also just such an important value in developing a Pan-Asian community, especially with the diaspora. So thank you guys for the work you're doing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. So you're the education specialist. So I'm going to ask you, I want you to educate me. In curating the um, exhibits and experiences, how does the Wing Luke make sure to really lift up the voices of the people you're portraying, whether that's like the team putting it together or the stories being featured? I love that question. And I always am so proud to say that we don't have curators on staff at the museum. So that's, <laughs> that's mind blowing. Um, I think that's something that really sets us apart since the 90s. We have um, really kind of taken the idea of a museum and have it live in community, right? Because if we're saying that we're a community-based museum, we have to live our values and we have to give that power back to the people who we want to represent. So um, our exhibits team is are kind of more like facilitators more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say we have an opportunity to work with like a specific community group. We ask um, some stakeholders that we may know of to kind of give us the names that should be at the table. Those folks generate more names that should be at the table. Um, and then we kind of see maybe whose voices are missing once we kind of gather that group together. And then we have a community advisory committee that's the kind of the voice, the spirit, the leaders, kind of the captains of the ship, let's say, of how they're portrayed, right? So I think it really kind of takes that idea of what a museum can be and it really represents like the mom and pop restaurants, the mm -hmm. stories of an uncles and aunties, the stories of folks that might not feel like the general narrative around their community hits them too. We have a lot of intersectional identities and it's kind of wild to think that like you have a table with like elders amongst like youth and folks that are just like coming out of high school, right? And it's having those conversations be vibrant and also transformative for both parties is also pretty wild. So um I do not I do not envy the exhibits team for having to navigate those kind of complexities, but mm -hmm. um, they are experts at it. And um, what it looks like is for a whole year or a year and a half, however long um, the, the timeline is for each individual exhibit, they meet um, once a month. And then they talk through um, like the look and feel of the exhibit, the content they want to focus in on, the stories that they want to share, the gathering of oral histories or the gathering of um, even personal objects from those family members or folks that are really important to the community. Like maybe there's a restaurant that needs to be featured. Well, then we can go out and talk to those restaurant owners, come back to the group and then make sure that that's ready to be shared and displayed for the exhibit. So um, it really is kind of led in led so much by the folks that we want to um, highlight. Yeah, that's... I think it's a very different way of approaching like ownership and and kind of um, and what a museum can be. And it's really beautiful that like we have these like values that are in our in our spaces that we have these meetings and it really is like we really push control like we uh, want to be a place of trust and we want to respect that trust and there's a lot of accountability with that as well so um really super proud that we don't have curators safer like let's say we might have like a um a like art exhibit that's coming up, maybe we'll invite a guest curator to come in, but those are really carefully chosen to make sure that um, 
that voice is still authentic and there's still a little bit of that push and pull and kind of play around advisory committees or communities kind of having their voice in those too. So um, very different approach to um, museum work and also just um, making sure that this kind of again we're dealing with populations that have had marginalized voices that have mm. never really seen themselves even as history makers or even as like worthy of museums right and to say that like no your story is very important your perspective is really crucial for us to um, highlight that is pretty powerful in itself oh so my gosh. yeah <laughs> no that's amazing it's first of all that was so amazing to hear and you clearly just have such a passion for the work you're doing and no wonder because I mean that's some amazing work I had like questions prepared to be discussing the idea of like decolonizing the museum but mm -hmm. even the way you just described how you guys are so community focused so owning your own narratives and stories focused it feels like I don't even need to ask this question <laughs> you have shown what it means to like decolonize a museum right and that's the thing about the museum industry is it's always so tied with like obviously with the quintessential images like this like um this like uh kind of cabinet of curiosities mm -hmm. of like looted materials and like ill-gotten gains and kind of this exoticization or this understanding of this like other or something that's different and i think um we kind of subvert that narrative quite a bit to just be like no <laughs> these are who we are and I think also to another layer of that is the kind of that aspect of like a curator coming in being the quote-unquote expert and kind of coming from maybe a more um, kind of research-based or scholarly based approach but yet like telling people like no this is your story this is your history this is how you act like this is who you are so like kind of along those like um, lenses of like anthropological or like history-based right it's I think it's something that is really truly rooted in like people's stories right and like mm -hmm. people sharing that that like love of family that people sharing their love or their perspective or their own identities so yeah and I mean like so much of museums are kind of traditionally viewed as these uh, places of high education and even uh, in some cases like very progressive in what they do but at the end of the day sometimes not all but like a lot of museums in the way that they format things and they add an assumption that the people who are being portrayed portrayed in there aren't living people anymore that they aren't thriving cultures that still exist today and so just hear how much you guys really like emphasize that kind of work of you know being like we have been here we are here today like don't forget it and i love that so much so i am curious then though about like where do you think elements like truth come into play in both museums as a whole and in the Wingluth? Because I know that you're talking about these people's stories, and my assumption is like those are their truths. I'm really interested to see how you feel that idea plays out into the work of the museum as a whole. That's a really good question. Um, and I think a truth is kind of truly subjective depending on who you speak to i mean yes there's like concrete like this is what happened at this date but i think um it's really interesting to then like really highlight those perspectives like i think the museum has taken the approach that like um we are sharing people's voices 
and uh, we do some fact checking of course and like that's definitely a piece and a part to our conversations but um like there's an exhibit called Vietnam in the rearview mirror that we have up that's our community portrait gallery space and um even just the way that the war is phrased right the American war in Vietnam mm -hmm. is just like mind-blowing to think about like how we've all been taught the Vietnam War but then to recognize it from the perspective of folks who are in the diaspora who may have had people fighting on different sides of the um, the, the the lines right and I think it's pretty powerful to recognize that that truth it might be counter to counter narratives to what we might have read in history books or come from our kind of American perspective, right? And to have it be told by like the realities of uh, what informed these families coming over to the United States um, is pretty powerful. So I think it, it kind of, um, I, I, that's a really good question about truth. Um, and I think it really lies within understanding that truth is, the personally kind of created or also like personally constructed or family constructed as well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's something um, we call ourselves the Wingling Museum of the Asian Pacific American experience. Just knowing that like that experience piece is such a big, important part of this American narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to just hear like we describe it in education as like we all have this little piece like even if we're just like going about our daily lives like going to the stores that we go to like talking to the people that we go we, we love as friends and um creating space for ourselves right we all have a little piece of this truth of this american puzzle we all have this piece of this um american history that we're living right now and i think um it's pretty powerful to like say like even if you're don't have documentation even if you don't um see yourself as a quote-unquote American because you're a first generation, right? You still have a piece of this American experience by just being yourself in America. And I think um, when we kind of think about it like that, it's really powerful to see like kids like kind of their gears turning of like, oh wait, I'm a history maker right now. Like, oh wait, mm -hmm. like there's something too, like there's something important about what I'm doing, even though I'm just like goofing off and playing Minecraft, right? Like there's like something to it. They're, like, they, they're giving us that piece of like American history right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yes, you, Asian child playing Roblox on, like, yeah. during, during your, like, class when you should be doing work, you are a part of history. Mm -hmm. And I mean, ignore us making a little silly joke at kids playing square-based games, but there is this pivotal element of giving a group to feel like that they can have a voice, not even just, like, maybe that they have a voice, but that what they're doing matters. And I think in that case, it's not just a thing of uplifting someone and giving them confidence, but it also, I believe personally, at least when you are showing someone that what they do matters and that they are part of a bigger picture, it makes them more capable of helping uplift their community and feeling like that they can actually make an impact on the world. So kudos to you guys, seriously. <laughs> Um, so a lot of these questions that we had were about cur cur curation work, but um, I'm going to take a step back from them because it's like, we don't need to focus on that. And so I am curious, I would love to kind of give you a rundown about what, um, while well, we just had this beautiful conversation about like truths and why it's important to have like ownership in stories for the things even in museums. 
this we're going to just go to your personal opinion. What's your favorite, like the most personally interesting uh, object on display that you ha- that you know of right now, the wing Luke? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's funny because I, with the high schoolers I was talking to today, we like went into the museum collections and it really is like kind of like a treasure trove of like Seattle stories. Like mm-hmm. you have like a barbershop chair right next to like the old sign for the King Fur Cafe. And it really feels like you're going into this like sacred space of like Seattle's like kind of um, really important stories. But um, on display right now, um, let me think. There's some really great things, um, and I think it's super powerful because we have an exhibit called Honoring Our Journey, which is kind of our main kind of focusing in on what is Asian Pacific American experience, like what makes us different, what makes us special, what the history of kind of the first generations, the second generations, what are the waves. And um, I think something that's really powerful is that you'll see that in the cases there are just like... um, artifacts pieces from different communities that you kind of don't expect so it was really powerful to like see some students like interact with like this beautiful like catholic cross that we have like that's from the philippines and like you wouldn't i wouldn't have thought like that would be what attracted them to like the whole exhibit but like they zero in on that they see themselves in that they like look at that they're able to say like that's my that's like that's something that i see in my my family's church right and you just kind of notice that like these little objects that we have that were collected that have these stories behind them. I think the meaning comes from the people kind of feeling that representation, kind of knowing that that space is here for them and that um, it's reflective of their, their lives. So for me too, like I'm Japanese American. Um, there's a really powerful uh, piece inside of our theater. And I literally talk about this like almost every day. Um, so kind of like, I love it. And at the same time, it kind of becomes part of my script, but at the same time, there's something really cool about it where it's um, a vintage screen, uh, theater script from the Nippon Kan theater, which was a historic Japanese cultural theater up at the top of Jackson street here, here in Seattle. And um, it is, is essentially just like a directory of different businesses because it used to work kind of like an advertisement board. It also doubled as a fire screen as well. Um, so they had can lighting you could imagine with like beautiful like dancers in the front. So you could imagine like there was fear of fire. So you could be pulled down to douse the, douse the stage should they need to. Um, but uh, what's cool is that you see these little squares and um, these squares each represent a different business that was a part of our Japan town or Nihon Machi. And Japan town was like 60 blocks of the city, right? Which is kind of mind-blowing that there was a lot that large of a Japanese American community here and um, each of these boxes are a different store from um, the last box was painted back in 1914 on this particular scrim and so you get to see like 1914 Japantown like in the pictures of the businesses through their advertisements that they put up right so you get to kind of know what the fashion was from this woman who's like dressed like very like prim and proper in this vest and a beautiful hat you get to see um the barber the barber pole that like people would hang out and chat and have conversations around and you just kind of get a glimpse back into this one moment in time of japantown and i think it's super powerful to just get that snapshot understanding that there's so little left of a nihonmachi today um if you're familiar with seattle it really is just kind of like 
three blocks, there's a resurgence of kind of this love of Japantown, but a lot of that is memory keeping and anchorship and honoring what was there because of the impact of Japanese American incarceration during World War II. So when we look at the scrim, we get to see like it at its heyday, like even like like as it's like climbing up to be like um, before the wars. Um, you just kind of recognize this like the the um, this kind of like long legacy of Japantown, but also you get that loss. Um, and for me, as Japanese American, trying to find kind of that connection to Japanese America here in Seattle, coming from Los Angeles, where mm-hmm. there's like a little Tokyo, right? I think it's super powerful to um, not only see that artifact, and then. We also do like tons of like each of those boxes, right? Different stories, different places. There's even like intersectionality within those spaces. Like there is a Chinese restaurant on the scrim. There are different levels of class on that scrim, right? Mm-hmm. And it just really kind of gives you that better picture of the places that we are in. Um, just knowing that like here I am on King Street, Jack Street is literally like one block over, right? And that's that's what we're talking about. That's the places that we are in, and Nihon Machi was such an important space to so much of the community that was here as well. So I think that is, first of all, what you're saying about this screen, which has all the like different parts of a Japan town in Seattle back in its heyday. I think that's so valuable because, you know, as someone who's lived in Washington my entire life, it's so easy for you to just assume that, there's no history for you, even though I am Korean. And I know that's also complicated with some things about presence in American history. Um, Like we're always so used to the things of being like, ah, the Pacific Northwest is so white. Seattle is so white. And I'm not going to deny a lot of those allegations, but I, I, you know, as I've gotten older now, I've started to realize that a lot of those kinds of messagings can be inherently a little bit harmful because it makes you just, assume that there is no history to look for or that there is no like that you really don't have any place here you have no ties to the culture to the landscape even and it can be uh, I think it's what leads to maybe some like a lot of the Asian diaspora like Asian American diaspora especially in the PNW to feel just very um, like disconnected uh, like mm-hmm. split from a wider rope of an understanding and so thing like when you were talking about the student who walked in and like saw the filipino like catholic cross i literally almost started my eyes almost started watering <laughs> like I, you know i'm always like oh representation should not be the the pivotal peak part of a like a work that we're doing like blah 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 but then you know the moment i see like a representation i'm like oh my heart oh gosh because you know, even though I am like, uh, I'm only 22, it's only really like gotten bigger in the more recent years, I think. And I think to some extent, representation has always been slowly and slowly just building up. And so it makes me so happy to see that younger generations, especially the ones that you're working with your with your programs, are able to get those experiences because that can be monumental for their entire life like how they navigate it yeah did you want me to talk a little bit about the Chinatown International District let's talk about that yes yeah because I think your assumption of like or the kind of like the narrative around Seattle so white is because it was constructed that way it was like to be that way. Yeah. It, it truly was like 
there is like a historic race line around Yesler and like even though you do have like a there was like for example like a Japanese American community up in Green Lake um, mm-hmm. and there was of course the Pike Place Market which was so crucial and still is crucial for so many um, Asian American communities I think it was constructed that it was a white man's like there were white neighborhoods that weren't mm-hmm. penetrable because of redlining because of racial housing covenants like I talk to students all day but I, 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 I swear like if you look at the property deeds of so many of these places, it says that like our bodies were not allowed in those spaces unless we were working for a white person. So like, it truly is like, yes, Seattle is white and it was constructed that way. It was to, it it was made to like have homesteaders take over indigenous land and Mm -hmm. kind of occupy those spaces. And there were certain areas that were seen as, um, not seemly right like unclean the not white spaces and those are the spaces that we occupy and i think um the chinatown international district is a really wild space here in seattle because it's not just one community and i think that also informs the museum as well because of the close close proximity we were really kind of triangled into right um and i think that's again very different than like many many different um ethnic communities and other spaces where you have like uh, little Tokyo next to Chinatown, next to like historic Filipino town, right? They're, like mm-hmm. they're separate spaces and different places in geo- like geographically around the city. But Seattle's we're kind of all stuck in the same kind of corridors <laughs> and corners, which is like, of course, like super bad. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like not great that we were penned in. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's a lot of solidarity within those spaces as well. So like even just like the street that I'm the museum is on, we're on King Street here in the middle of Seattle's Chinatown historically we're in a Chinese American business. Um, but then there was a Manila town or Filipino experience, Filipino mm-hmm. town within these spaces. Um, and then if I look down the street, I can see there's the Jade Garden dim sum restaurant. And it used to be the, um, it used to be a black owned hotel, right? Wow. So you have black stories, you have Jewish stories, you have anybody who was not um, European American, not of uh, not not of Protestant persuasion. Like this mm-hmm. is kind of the space that everybody was kind of pushed into. But at the same time, like we do have this kind of um, this kind of like really kind of vibrant intersectional identities within these neighborhoods of Seattle, Chinatown, International District, Beacon Hill, the Central District. These are all kind of um, South Seattle. And um, it really is just so many different histories are all kind of in the same in the same kind of woven patterns. Like I can wax poetic about Jackson Street being a part of Japantown, but also the center of jazz here in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so many kind of black owned establishments, businesses, music venues were all up and down that street. Um, the Black and Town Hall Club, which is now has a home in Beacon Hill, used to be on 12th and Jackson, um, and it catered to Black and Tan folks, right? It catered to the people of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's just so easy for us to say, like, oh, Chinatown, so Asian American, like there's Chinese restaurants, right? But that's not like the full picture. And historically, a lot of um, Indigenous uh, folks were also down kind of closer to the Pioneer Square area. But we see that like there's a lot of there's a lot of mixing happening. Um, and truly, that was because we weren't really able to go to different places. Um, 
And I think it was really powerful for me to like take a look at the um, Green Book, the um, the kind of the traveling guide for African American travelers. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the um, to kind of have like safe spaces to go to, I think their tagline is. Um, recreation without humiliation, right? So you look through and you find the different spaces and you see Seattle's portion of it. All of the hotels are in the Chinatown International District area. They're all kind of dotting names up, up and down the streets over here. And that gives you that true sense of like, there was a lot of intersectionality that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was also wild for me to see that like the color line for bl- the black uh, musicians uh, labor union was Yesler, right? So everywhere down south of Yesler was places and clubs and venues that these uh, performers could perform in. So it's just it's just kind of Seattle is white because it was constructed that way through racist <laughs> policies, through laws, through mm-hmm. racial housing covenants. So I think it's really powerful then to like understand that and then take solidarity because of that, you know, a little yeah. bit of a different twist. Seattle, maybe Seattle's so white, but that doesn't mean it wasn't like, it's like that because it was born that way. Um, mm-hmm. That's so like, I think it just shows the importance too of how I think in the first steps of a pan Asian community being built of solidarity is that it really joins a broader solidarity with other people of color, with indigenous people, because I think it's really like, especially now we're in the more contemporary era and I know a lot of sometimes our listeners kind of deal with things like, how do you deal with anti-blackness in your mm-hmm. like in your family, apparently by your parents um, or grandparents? and it feels a little hopeless, like, oh, was there, like, has there ever been any examples of solidarity? But there has been, not just in Seattle, but, like, in California, on the East Coast. Um, It's just about, you know, engaging with community, and I think that's... uh, had a class today sorry had a class today it's getting me really emotional also talked about <laughs> briefly the yellow peril and the black power movement yeah. i'm like i'm like oh feeling just <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for giving uh, our listeners like a rundown of the area because it is just i think it's one of the most interesting like chinatowns i said the quotation marks i have ever been to and i'm not just saying that because i'm biased because i it was the main area of Seattle I honestly grew up going to, um, but because of how it is built, um, I think when I even visited New York and I went to the Chinatown there for the first time, I was like, well, what the heck? I was like kind of caught off guard because it's just so different. So mm-hmm. to all of our listeners out there, I hope we focus this on our food episode per- previously last season, but I really want you to know, like, look into those uh, pivotal Asian spaces in your nearby cities, in your nearby towns, uh, because there's such a rich history there. And I think it's just a great reminder that you, um, in what can be feel very lonely in America, it's like you're not alone. So once again, thanks for, thank you so much for giving that rundown. 
and I also feel like I, I would be remiss to say that there are other Asian American spaces, other Pacific Islander spaces, Native Hawaiian spaces beyond the Seattle limits for sure. And like beyond the Chinatown International District. Um, and these histories are just as important. Like a lot of these like far flung places that are like kind of the farming towns, right? Like Auburn. Yes. There's a yeah. lot of sick, a lot of South Asian stories within like the hop farms that were part of our like love of beer industry here in the Pacific Northwest, right? So like, um, and I think even more contemporarily, like you'll have new diaspora coming in and new spaces like the Seattle's are rather Bellevue's East side, right? That whole oh, area yeah. is filled with a bunch of kind of um, a different a different wave of different kind of community as well, different makeup of that community, different even class levels of that community too. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's really kind of, I, I waxed poetic about the historic part, the historic like heart and peace of the Chinatown International District, but that's not to say that there aren't like beautiful pockets of kind of community. And even that is um, really representative of like being able to move to different spaces because of this opening up of these historic kind of segregation lines and red lines. And then the other piece of that is also, it's really expensive here in our gentrifying Seattle that like (laughs) it's no longer possible for a lot of our Asian American communities to be down here. It's no longer possible for native Hawaiian Pacific Islander populations to be centrally located where they might have been. But um, now it's maybe up North or down South in kind of the suburbs. Right. So Mm-hmm. a lot of different kind of important pieces that like um it's it's it, the broader picture of the seattle scope is both based in history both based on market pressures and both based in the contemporary for sure mm-hmm. and i mean it's just like you said into all the those contemporary like pockets of people shout out to federal way where i go to shinjin the korean department store um it's about like you are making history in your presence there and you're going to those businesses and your like memories that you create uh and that's that's so beautiful oh my gosh this is just my heartstrings episode if i didn't have false eyelashes on i'd probably be weeping a lot of restraint happening with these i'm like locked up so uh now that it's like i would love to ask you now on recording because i know we talked about it a little off recording Uh can you describe some of the programs that you do uh and plan out and execute as the education specialist yeah, so I have a really fun job, actually. I get to work with youth in many different capacities. Um, I am a part of our Teens White Art Program, which is middle school youth. It's a free art program, and we always work with a teaching artist, a local um, BIPOC, Asian American, Pacific Island, Native Hawaiian teaching artist. And it really is kind of based off of uh, kind of off the cuff, it's it's based off of our passions as um, me and my co-partner, Em um, Halliday, Tatek Choi, uh, we get to decide what we focus in on, just knowing that um, there are folks that we can catch. So like we have a we had a D and D whole session last last time where we made characters and we got these students to like get to like become like elves and like become like fairies, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But really kind of um, sharing that our teaching artist was like a Thai fil- Thai American filmmaker, right? And was like talking about narrative and speaking about like how we can think about these characters, but we can also use those as like viewpoints to our own characters in our lives. And so like um, really fun that like 
we do D&D at the same time. We're getting them to like look at identity. And another piece too, when we make our programs is to really try to get them connected to the museum as a whole, but also the neighborhood as a whole. So if that means going on field trips to local restaurants or bringing in food, um, that's important to us. They're the new stakeholders of the Chinatown International District. So we want them to fall in love with the same place that we love. And then the other piece is like trying to make museum spaces feel like home is really important to us. So like if you're a 12, 10 to 12 year old, right? Like museums aren't necessarily the fun place that you go to unless yeah. you're a museum nerd like I was. <laughs> but like um, the fact that you can like come in every day, hang out with friends, have food, do art, talk about Genshin Impact with each other, right? Like that's <laughs> what, that's what they, like it was so powerful to be like, oh cool, like this is a space for you guys. And like this mm -hmm. is, I'm glad to provide that for you all. Um, and then I also do summer camp. So kind of that same idea, we really tried to make these spaces feel like home. So like one day we like, we threw down like paper airplanes off the top of the museum steps. And like, that's what some of the kids remember. Oops, sorry. That's what some of the kids remember. Like, that's like, that's the thing. It's like, we threw paper airplanes down the museum steps. And I'm like, great. That's, that's exactly what we want. We want you to feel like this is, um, like constructive play in the museum spaces and not destructive play, but um, to really make it feel like this is a place for them. So we, um, I work with six or 12 or six or 12 years for summer camp. I work with our teens for teens way. And then I also do these kind of one-off school partnerships throughout the year. So for example, we're working with um, Summit Sierra, which is a high school up the street from us. And it's really quite cool that these are kids that trans transit in and out of the Chinatown International District every day to get to class. And it's really beautiful that then they can now like look at the businesses we've taken them into for field trips for this program and then know that they can go into those spaces and they can know the people behind the counters or they can um, understand what's behind like that door that's always closed, you know, and like learn that there is a lion dance studio or like a Cantonese opera troupe back there. It's just really cool to kind of make place making so much a part of their experience so that it's not just a place to catch the bus anymore. It's a place to then walk into or to say hello to or just kind of feel a little bit more grounded in the places that you're in. 100%. Oh. Yeah, I almost, you almost got me there. I almost started <laughs> crying. Um, oh God. I have just the utmost respect and appreciation for the work you're doing. I know so much of this interview has just been me gushing. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you're really focusing on so much of what I feel like a lot of people are, primarily people of color, feel is missing from museum experiences and feeling is like feel that is missing from even to some extent youth education experiences uh and it's like you invest when you invest in the young people you're investing also in the future of the area and you guys are directly just tying that together and creating this very beautiful anchor of also maintaining history but also uplifting the contemporary oh my gosh <laughs> yeah that's just it's truly so amazing um i'm gonna start rounding at the interview soon but yeah. i wanted to ask you one maybe one last fun question one last more question about the work that you guys do um so first of all is there something you would like to plug in for the museum for all of our listeners out there um any perhaps recent exhibits focusing on music or such 
Yeah, probably. I probably should or else my marketing is going to get very mad at me if I don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we have a new exhibit, um, uh, which is all about um, Asian American, Pacific Island, Native Hawaiian kind of music pathways. Um, there's really cool kind of conversations around like the music at uh, South Asian weddings, right? We just, like mm-hmm. highlight Red Bar Hot. And there's some really great um there's some really great stuff in there. It's called Sound Off. Um, also, currently, we have a really beautiful exhibit kind of thinking about kind of decolonizing a museum um, and also the kind of uncomfortableness of like U.S. territories. Um, mm-hmm. We have an exhibit about kind of Chamorro uh, uh, queer uh, uh, artist collective called Gumagela, and um, it is really kind of a beautiful art installation full of life and energy and it truly is trying to like uh, position this like beautiful perspective of what it means to be Chamorro from their from their um, different kind of uh, artworks that are in that space just knowing that like there's a lot of problematic stuff uh, with American imperialism with America being and kind of that militaristic history in Guam and in the Micronesian Islands. So it's just really powerful that we get to highlight that story um, with a beautiful exhibit with like color, with like ballroom culture, with fashion, with traditional weaving styles. So it's really powerful to go into that space too. Um, I would be remiss to not say that like we love being a part of the community that we're in and we really want to say that we're kind of um, really trying to get people to go out and find those places of connection, find these places of love, just like our youth programs. So we have a lot of tours. Um, and I would be remiss to not mention that we have a food tour where we're all foodies here at the museum. We're yes. all um, lovers of all the, yeah. And we all, we all love, uh, we all love our mom and pop shops and truly we want them to stay around. And um, it's, obviously been a pretty tumultuous time with COVID-19 and then with kind of the coming back into spaces. And so part of those food tours is to say that like, there are great places that we want to introduce you to. If you're afraid to look at a large menu, we're going to give you a dish and have you fall in love with those spaces. And we really want you to go back and support those folks because we love the people in our neighborhood. And we recently had to do a couple changes to that, just knowing that so many folks decided to close, whether that was to retire and do other things, or it was too hard with the economic pressures post-COVID. But um, we really want to highlight those folks that are still doing doing the work, kind of going, going, going and doing very hard work for that matter. And so we want to make sure that people fall in love with the Chinatown International District, just knowing that um, these are people we want to still stay, still have, still have stay in power here. So the idea of like, you, if you don't use it, you lose it, I think really comes true with our food tours. So we want to make sure you're still around. Wonderful. And here's my last fun question. Uh, so think of maybe like a trip to visiting the Wing Luke Museum as like the main course. What are you pairing it with? Like, where do you also recommend? So, okay, here's my plan. I'm visiting Seattle for the first time and I only want to stay in the ID, like the CID. So I visit the Wing Luke. What else do you pair with that day? Where am I eating? Where do you think I should just go to look at things? Maybe like three appetizer, dessert, beverage pairing. Like that is actual, such a good question. Not actual food, but you know what I mean. Like metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my my mind automatically goes to food though, well, but no, I you know you're totally you right. Food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I think. Um. 
I think you can start off with a delicious um, coffee at the Panama Hotel and mm-hmm. Tea House, um, which is in historic Japantown. So you get to kind of, I'm going to kind of like take you guys on a tour of the neighborhood, just like by spaces. So like, go to the top of Japantown, go find these kind of historic images of the Japantown of the past. Um, the Panama Hotel was a space that uh, Japanese Americans could leave items when they went to camps. And um, it really... Uh, it becomes a repository because a lot of those families hadn't come back. So those items are displayed all around that space. So you get to have a delicious cup of tea with history. And then you also can get a Takara Wagashi, which is like a beautiful rice cake there too. Um, and so that's where I would start, uh, knowing that there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in Japantown right now. If you want onigiris, go to Itsuma, or you go to um, Onibaba, which is a new lunchtime kind of uh, onigiri place. Or if you want to go to a bar later on, go to Itsumono if you get a spot, because they are super popular now. Um, but it's a delicious, uh, delicious kind of um, perspective of, what, of a chef kind of sharing about who he is. So... Um, and then kind of go towards Kobo Higo and go and check out um, a historic location that has really great contemporary art, right? So that's just Japantown swath as you're walking your way down to the Wing Luke Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, go to the, go to, come visit us, please. Um, <laughs> you can get some dim sum on at Harbor City. Um, and I think we're kind of in the Chinatown core, right? Um also, too, um, we have our fantastic areas of like, there's a lot of st- fun stuff happening in this kind of new Filipino um, experience where we have Hood Famous Bakery with some oh, really great coffee. Yeah, ube cheesecake, really great pastries, um, a rose caldo. So go down there, check out. There's actually really great images of the historic Filipino town there as well. Um, that's really close to the um, to the uh, transit too, so you can go anywhere after that as well. Um, and then if you can hop on the streetcar, go to Hello M, um, go get a cloud coffee, uh, an egg cloud coffee, and enjoy um some delicious Vietnamese coffee up over there so that would be my pathway if I'm already up in Little Saigon I might go to Chumin Tofu to get a delicious uh, vegetarian vegan banh mi from a fantastic person who um, really believes in community care so highly recommend Chumin Tofu as well if you're up over there so that would be my my route if I were to try to hit all like the important stops of um Chinatown International District just off the top of my head I don't know why I was like literally fangirling and it's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, you're both in Seattle right now. Um, (laughs) But I would like to just shout out Hello M really quickly. If you guys Mm -hmm. listen to our food episode, we actually interviewed the owners of Hello M uh, Pho Box Soup Shop and then also their most recent endeavor, the Pacific Time, uh, Mm -hmm. which is so, so cool. I'm just really trying to shout out Seattle right now as the one uh, PNW host on the team. <laughs> uh, but I, okay, first of all, beautiful tour, and I also like that you mentioned coffee twice. I mean, you're in Seattle; you might as well. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. gotta get twice. I mean, yeah, you can only go to Starbucks so often. Also, you should not go to Starbucks <laughs> right now for a certain. And our weekend. Starbucks, our Starbucks closed down because of the la- like labor union. So but it was one of those like safety concerns, but very much that they were unionizing. So we don't have mm-hmm. a Starbucks in the neighborhood. More. Yeah. No, so, and you know what? You don't need them. You don't need them. Hey. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Maya. You really kind of showed how 
the museums of the future can kind of take in what the wing loop is doing in community first um, and really uplifting the space, not only where you are, but even just the people in the surrounding area. Like, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was great. In my experience with the Wing Luke, one of my wonderful experiences was the tour guide, M. Uh, you'll be hearing them soon as they were walking me through the Sound Off exhibit, but I want you to know to all the DAG listeners, please go to the Wing Luke and let M show you how it's done. Everything was so beautifully explained, and it really shows the work that it takes to kind of build up this knowledge and really show how it can be presented to people who visit. So here's the clips. Today right now, I am currently in the Chinatown International District of Seattle, Washington, and I will be going on a tour into the Wing Luke Museum, one of the only Pan-Asian American museums in this country. Let's go explore. And uh, while we're at it, I want you to just listen to some of the sounds of this Seattle International District today. It's very cloudy, very rainy, very prototypical Seattle. Okay, I see my interviewee. I'm going in. Okay, so we are currently in the Wing Luke Museum, and here we are with the guest that we had previously interviewed in our episode. Would you mind saying hello again, Maya? Hi, everybody. I'm Maya Hayashi. Wonderful. So if you guys can hear, you're kind of hearing the ambiance of the staff who are up working up front and then also the collection of different exhibits. I will be going on a tour later. It will be for the historic hotel tour and we'll hopefully get some videos and photos from that. We worked with a really awesome artist. His name is Paul Kikuchi. He does uh, like historic sound preservation and vinyl preservation, but he also just makes soundscapes. Oh, um, so we actually commissioned about two and a half. There's like two that blend together, but about two and a half uh, soundscapes for the exhibit. Uh, and kind of when Paul talks about them, he really talks about the idea that despite the name being the music we make, it's also about how sound shapes us and how, you know, we have all of these sense memories around sound that can kind of be lost or forgotten. So I really like coming in here, flowing through oh the, my gosh. the huge cacophony of everything. And then... I will have to come back here on my own just to do like a quick run through, but oh, yeah. But then you come here and there's a soundscape that leads you through uh, this piece that's just all of the vinyl records that were in our collection that people donated to us that really run the gamut in terms of, you know, some of it is... Uh, some of it is stuff that has been brought over with families, right? Whether that be recently or less so. Um, but then it also is the music that we've created here politically or just to become a part of a community. Um, I always kind of joke off the record-ish. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to steal this. Yeah. Um, because, of course, Yellow Pearl is iconic. They're a part of, you know, the late 60s, early 70s Asian American movement and having that kind of very physical piece of their legacy is something that is really powerful. Uh, as you're doing that, right, we've yes. also got that soundscape up top. It's, it's very, very small on the mic, but I'm sure it'll get picked up. 
not what I expected, honestly, to be playing right now. Yeah, you party, uh, it's a little bit of pop, a little bit of everything, and one thing I love, we might not wait to catch it, but um, he cut in like old radio DJs from Seattle. So um, like you have this incredible experience of it really does feel like you're kind of stepping through the years of like being a young person in Seattle, finding that show or that music or whatever that really speaks to you. Mm -hmm. um, and it really brings us into uh, kind of central to the idea of the exhibit, which is... Uh, this is, oh my gosh, the <laughs> BTS bed. Okay, I have to get a photo of this for the... Yeah, it's like, how, how does music, the concept of music get shared? Uh, oh. So the idea with this space here is that you've got one half of the room is very like immigrant family living room, right? You've got your old record player, you've got all of the records that have been brought over. Um, which is extra special shout out, we're particularly fond of VST, the Bee Gees of the Philippines. Um, one of their members moved to Seattle and has become a huge part of the museum community and we're very grateful for his participation. Yes, Santa on the, on the lowdown. Oh, uh, for for the this year, the 2023. Santa? Yes, this year was especially hard emotionally for us. We had to replace our two Asian American Santas, um, who were longtime community members and friends. And so when we were kind of trying to picture who would be Santa, we thought I keep calling him Boogie Down Santa. So uh, <laughs> we we thought Boogie Down Santa would be perfect, uh, and we have gotten very positive reports from him. He loved it. It was great for him, and it was great for us to get to see that. Um, that is so lovely. A, a boogie down Santa. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is a really wonderful photo that you've added in this clock. I mean, everything right now just feels like it's so cohesive, but there's something about um, this one, too, especially for people who are, like, did Washington State public education. That's really such a... That, like, Ah, this, and then I turn around and the BTS is there, and I'm like, oh, hello. Yeah, so again, it's really that idea that you don't even have to be listening to the same records or to the same songs, but there's something about how music uh, becomes a part of our identities. Uh, I think so often, uh, any community of color, but especially like Asian American and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans, we're really asked to put that identity first and foremost. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when we can take a step back and say, it's a part of who we are, it's a part of what inspires what we make uh, visually and audibly, uh, but I'm really into jazz or I'm really <laughs> into riot girl music yeah. and like being able to expand on that more so than just like, this is what it's like to be Asian American. Um, because everything that we do is inherently Asian American, even if it's not what other people view as Asian American. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, there's so many different genres to enjoy. Uh, I have to ask, where did you, whose dresser is this? <laughs> I am actually not sure whose dresser this is. I have been told conflicting things. <laughs> So I won't name anyone, mm -hmm. uh, but I will say, again, really we wanted to capture the idea of being a teenager and trying to figure out who you are, uh, which is hard for anyone, <laughs> but mm -hmm. again, you add that layer of you're always going to be racialized, you're always going to experience the world in that way, but you're also just trying to figure out who you are as an individual and as a person, and music is such a key part of that. Um, Hence why we've got we've got 
quite a bit of like Riot Girl, quite a bit of pop punk. I mean, look at Seattle. You can't not have the Riot Girl. You can't not have the pop punk. I love the creeper stuffed animal next to this Sulu figure. That this, is one, this one I can source. Um, it came from our youth can lead or you can lead slash exhibit designer. I don't know what his full title is, uh, <laughs> but Blake, he uh, was very proud of the fact that he got to sneak in his creeper plush into the exhibit. I think it's, it fits perfectly, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, one other piece too, we've got those two soundscapes that kind of bleed together. Um, really beautifully done. I cried the first time I heard it. It's oh. community members singing the songs that they think were most important to them in their childhood, so. My eyes watering. <laughs> I, I'm literally like, my worst fear was I was gonna come in here and start weeping and I fear that might happen, so I'm gonna try not to get that recorded, but I, I see that like the dateless is something else, but like not necessarily someone just like burning their own CDs, but my sister, she's like seven years older than me. So when I was growing up, she would always, I'd be like, Anni, can you please make me a mixtape? <laughs> Except it's like a CD. And so it's like her illegally burning music from like the 2010s, 2000s onto it for me. Oh, so emotional. And then, yeah, we get into more of the technical piece because, uh, of course, with any art, there's training that goes yeah. into it. Mm -hmm. um, this personally is maybe my favorite setup just because um, one thing didn't even mention, uh, but all of our text panels have playlist prompts. Oh so we encourage gosh. visitors to kind of create their own uh, experience of their own music throughout the years. Again, understanding that everyone's taste, everyone's style is going to be different. As this episode comes to a close, we'd like to shout out the rest of our team who you don't hear from as often as us co-hosts. Their contributions are integral to the smooth running of Dear Asian Girl, and we would hate to take all the credit for what is truly a huge team effort. Annika, May, Pavani, Yalda, Anya, and Michaela are our researchers, and Sonia is our audio engineer. Emma, Prisha, and Claire are our social media writers. Chloe, Kaylee, and Nicole are our social media illustrators. Alex is our social media manager, and Annette is our podcast manager. And finally, Ellie is our podcast director. Thanks, team. We couldn't do it without you.